Welcome to French Legal, where we explore innovation in action. I'm your host, Abhijat Sarasimuth, and in each episode, we dive into conversations with changemakers who share ideas, insights, and lessons from their journey. Join us as we put theory into practice and shed light on the world of innovation like never before. Without further ado, let's get started. Despite the legal profession's emphasis on prioritizing value, innovation, and technology, both legal departments and law firms face challenges as they remain entrenched in familiar patterns. Clients aren't rewarding innovation efforts, while law firms are hesitant to invest in technology. The industry requires consistent leadership and transformational change to break the cycle and deliver more efficient, valuable legal services. Those are some of the findings from the third annual Legal Pricing and Project Management Survey report, which was produced by the Legal Value Network and the Blickstream Group. I'm delighted to have the authors, Brad Blickstein, David Cambria, and returning guest, Keith Masaryk, on the show to dig deeper into the findings. All three of you, welcome, and thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. I guess let's start with the report in its entirety. I'm curious if there was a takeaway for each of you that really stood out, something maybe that was unexpected, surprising. And the reason I ask is in reading the report, there's a number of different takeaways for me. And one part of me was looking at it from a very negative sentiment. It seems like we've taken one step forward and two steps back. And there's a lot of... it doesn't seem to be true understanding what value means. People don't want to leverage technology anymore. It's seen as expensive. But yeah, curious what your thoughts were. And David, if you don't mind, maybe we kick things off with you. Yeah, listen, I think what it highlights for me is that there's greater thought being given to what is value and what is progress. As the world changes around us, I think people's thoughts around how to continue to meet those needs continues to evolve. And so for me, I view it as a positive. If you think about coming out of a world of a pandemic, and if you think about changing macroeconomic trends, what you start to see is people giving some thought around how can we continue to do better and strive better. And I think when you look at a bunch of professionals who dedicate their lives to serving the needs of their clients, they're always thinking about this. And I think they judge themselves more harshly then say folks who are more casual observers of that. And so that's why I think you start to see a shifting in some of the responses year over year is because they're paying attention to the broader trends that are happening and evolving around them. Yeah. And Brad, what was something that stood out to you? Yeah, I think it's not as much one step forward and two steps back as maybe it's or maybe it is one step forward with two steps back, but that's not as negative as you make it sound. That's how progress is. Or maybe we'd prefer to be seeing two steps forward and one step back, but the idea that it's just linear, that's just not how it works. I think that we are on a long, slow journey to towards a totally different way in how legal services are bought and sold between clients and counsel. And it's not going to be a straight line. And that's okay. Yeah. So basically, it's a consistent but incremental term that compounds hopefully over time. Incremental for sure. Consistent might, would be nice. Sure. A general slow long move in the right direction. 
Hmm. Keith? I think mine, it just speaks to the theme of the report, where we are collecting information on common topics from both the client and the law firm side. The sort of persistence of the difference of perception on either side, where one side thinks they're doing a great job of something, and the other side goes, wow, we have a completely opposite sort of perspective on that, or we're nowhere near as positive on that belief that you're doing a good job as you are, that disconnect. And I think that just speaks to, I would say two things. I feel like that disconnect has gotten, has lessened over more recent years as you get more of the stakeholders that contribute to these surveys, talking more commonly, like that's become increasingly more common in the industry. So while they're still misaligned, I think that there's, I like to be an optimist. I think that there is forward momentum. And if we're using these, the steps analogy, that's two steps forward, one step back to keep with that theme. But you do still see some of these persistent deltas or discrepancies, which is interesting. You think you'd see more alignment, but I guess, again, being an optimist, there's movement in the right direction. So I'm happy about that. And I guess speaking about disconnect, there is, there does seem to be a disconnect looking at the findings between clients and law firms, especially with regards to what is value. And I think there was a page dedicated to even know what value means. Is it something that will, when we see it, we'll know what it is. And innovation, I guess, as you think about achieving better alignment, there's probably no perfect solution and probably not one way of achieving this, but What's a good way to be able to reduce that gap or increase alignment around there in clients and more firms? Because the incentives don't seem to be aligned equally either. I'll kick this one off really quickly. I think, what, again, more of based on uh, the evolution of the roles is much more transparency and much more communication. And those are the things that help you start bridging that gap between what's important or what is valuable and what's not. Because without that discussion, without that openness, each side has their own perceptions of it or their own beliefs, expectations. But until you reconcile those, you really don't have a platform on which you can meet. I think we're seeing some improvement in that regard. Well, I think I would add that transparency oftentimes leads to one, a falling away of old assumptions about what a measure actually is measuring and whether it has value. And two, I think it opens up a series of other questions as to what can we do that's better or more informative about what this thing called value is. And I think there's still a struggle for a whole host of reasons, whether it's how the inputs of the data happen, how people understand and read that, who's tracking what, as to how you can actually put a finger on what value is. And so I think as you see a maturity in the market around what these things show, and people get more educated on whether they're just a proxy for nothing as opposed to a true measure of something, I think you start to see that there is still that disconnect because there is still that broader problem around how do you measure that thing. Incentives do play a large part in that for sure. I mean, you certainly have different incentives driving the behaviors, driving what I'm going to probably, what I'm going to try and solve for. And I think that's a real part of it, but I think it also is underwritten by this broader understanding of what it is we have as measures and what it is we don't have as measures. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll say, first of all, I think we should not underestimate how difficult this is. 
even it is extremely difficult for the legal function to define its value to the organization just on its face, right? What is the, if you can minimize some risk or the chances that issue would have blown up in your face or in the company's face, what would that have cost? How much trouble would that have been? And then you got to take a, basically take a discount for the odds of it actually happening and multiply that by everything the law department does. Like it's really, or the legal function, I should say, it's really hard, right? So we're, with all the issues that Keith and David brought out are true and misaligned objectives or incentives is a big one for sure. But it's not just, it's not as simple as law firms want to be profitable and make money and corporations want to reduce the cost. Like just, we're playing at the highest levels with the highest level of difficulty just on defining value from the whole thing before we even start to ascribe who gets any credit for that value or what that value is actually worth when it's dollars spent with the firm versus headcount spent in-house or anything else. This is like anyone who feels like they don't have a good sense for how much value they're delivering. You're in good company because I don't, frankly, I don't really know anybody who does. Well, it's really quickly, just one of the, one of the data points we measured underscores that sort of in living color from the LDO survey, there was a question that said, what do you choose? How do you select outside counsel? And I think it was like eight of the six of the eight measures were all spend or savings based. But when they say what's important to you in outside counsel, it's expertise and relationship and results and all that. And when you look at those are the things they ask law firms for. But when it comes down to what are the metrics you use to make your decisions, it's all the other ones that are very much sort of economics and savings based, budget based, and not excellence or output or value, quote unquote value based, how you might want to define that. So it's a really good sort of in, in black and white kind of dichotomy there. It's interesting to see. Yeah, the four of us, I think that might change if the four of us could come up with a good value-based metric that they could use instead. And the three of us, we've been trying for combined 50 years, right? It's not, it's not easy to do. So I think part of that is just, we don't, I don't know if it's as conscious as I'm making it out to be. We don't have good metrics for this. We don't know how to measure that. This and this is all out of gut and feel, which is why we say it's important. But when it comes down to anything that we have to prove out, all we got is cost. Yeah, and Brad, I think it and Keith, it's more pervasive than that because even when a department tries to put programs around value and buying decisions, oftentimes the buying decision is still very fragmented to the individual lawyers in the department who are making decisions not necessarily on those parameters which you set up, but on all these other types of things that we've spoken about. How, how do you think? And I guess th- this is the this is me not knowing any better, frankly. What would drive a significant change in here. And I see this, and I know I started this as a very pessimistic, negative point of view, but I think if, as a law firm, if you can crack some of this, and as a legal department, you can crack this, purely gives you a significant edge over everyone else that you're competing with. So being able to measurably, that being underlined, deliver value will be amazing. But without really, if everyone's okay with how things are going and is looking at solving these problems, as you said, Brad, these are very challenging questions to figure out the answers to, and it's not going to happen overnight, but what actually will end up driving the change? What's the point of no return where someone says, we have to figure out a better way to do this? What's the level of transformation? What would drive that level of transformation in a firm or in a law department? 
So I, I would just challenge the premise a little bit to say that I think law firms and law departments can and do figure it out. When the matter is big enough, when the issue is big enough, from a risk perspective or cost perspective, people sit down in a room and they spend the actual time to think about what does success look like? How are we going to equate that to value? What should the team expertise look like? And there's a very clear mission and understanding of what it is we're trying to solve for. I think what happens is when those issues aren't so big, so aren't so pervasive, that it doesn't, that solutioning that you do on the bigger problems doesn't scale well to more of your routine everyday work. It's a lot of calorie burn to get there. So the horsepower and brain power is there to do it. It's really though, when the matters and issues aren't so big that I can't get everyone's attention focused on it, that it becomes a question of scalability and repeatability. Now, again, when it's a big issue, I know what I'm pointing the problems or what I'm trying to solve for in terms of problems. It's easier to describe what is a win, what is a loss, what is value. It's in that everyday battle where most people spend their time that it's not so clear. And so having a framework around that, having the ability to scale that, I think is really what keeps that from growing at the pace we'd all like to see. It's just my opinion. I would add, I think that and this is something I've worked on. I know a lot of my colleagues and counterparts have worked on as well. I don't think traditionally law firms are too good at articulating or framing what they've done from a perspective of here's what you gained from it or here's what the value is. Uh, I would say there's also typically not too much of an audience that's asking about that. I've never had anybody say, how great did this go? They say, what was my discount on that or whatever? That's more commonly the the script that we hear, but I think there's a lot, there, there've been a few distinct efforts along over the years that I've taken with specific client situations or portfolios we've worked on or what have you, where we've really taken great effort to say, okay, afterwards, here's what happened. Here's where some of the difficulties came in or challenges and what we were able to bring to the table that was a specific advantage to the client and affected the outcome in a positive way, making that more of a standard operating procedure. And ideally, if you had some sort of standardized metrics would be nice, but even just sort of nice sort of decision points or levers that you use to define or frame those discussions, I think goes a long way because I think it, a lot of times it's an afterthought about what did I get out of this sort of thing. It's on to the next thing, not really what did the service or the circumstances yield to us as a result when all was said and done. I tried to make a metric out of it one time years ago where I was taking how much did we spend and how many hours did we work? And I would compare that to what was the, as best I could estimate, the economic outcome of the matter. So if it was a litigation matter, if we got a $50 million claim dismissed, well, you saved $50 million, it, you spent 150000 or whatever, it was something, whatever, I'm not making these numbers up. But I could say for every dollar you spent, you got 5000 back. Is that a good enough return for you? I don't know if I did. I think I've mentioned this recently. I want to revisit that concept because maybe it it's not, I don't think standalone, it's enough. But I think it helps add to the conversation if you frame it in terms of just acknowledging that I got something in return for what I spent. But again, I think a lot of it comes down to focusing on that. And that's not something that either side has been good about defining or articulating. And actually, yeah, I actually keep think... too, I, 
I'm sorry, Brad, go ahead. I was going to say, I imagine that in some instances, that's really hard to pinpoint because I can't remember you mentioned sure. this one earlier, but when you're trying to mitigate something that hasn't happened, how do you even quantify that from an economic point of view? The Very cost sure. of this could have been infinite, potentially, but we mitigated it. Does that mean that you get an infinite return? No, but you get a return between one and infinity. And mm -hmm. I don't know how well that shows up on a on on an executive scorecard somewhere. And I always say, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. That's definitely yeah. definitely not a perfect metric, but I wonder if it's a good metric versus a worthless metric or some yeah. form of it. I don't know. I'm still, I'm, yeah. I'd like to play with that a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. When you talk about maximum potential exposure, I think that there is a measurement there that I think is worth looking at. Look, and I think the other part is, is buyers of legal services, Oftentimes, they are very quick to put the firm in a defensive posture about their actual cost or they're focused on the inefficiencies. And when you start framing the discussion around the inefficiencies, it's harder to build that story around the value provided. Mm -hmm. The reality of it is in professional services, regardless of how great the firm is, there's inefficient behaviors that happen for one reason or another. And I'm not suggesting anything nefarious. And yet, when you focus that as your main storyline and you start nibbling on the edges, you do have a harder time creating that story around, here's the value, right? The analogy I use is we've asked you to climb a dirt mountain and we're complaining you've got dirty shoes, right? You made it to the top. So isn't there a story there in terms of the value that we provided? But again, I think the dynamic so, today, let's focus on where the inefficiencies are and where we're upset rather than the overall value provided or the success. But at risk of totally abusing your analogy, David. It's easy to ask to climb a dirt mountain than complain that the shoes are dirty when you're getting billed by the shoe. It's, you have to keep in mind that, and by the way, and I'm not really railing against the billable hour here. I've done that before, but it's more that both buyers and sellers have a nasty habit of conflating value with effort. Mm -hmm. And they're really pretty different things, right? So it's not just that, oh, the hourly bill disincentivizes inefficiency. It's more that both sides just see what the, don't have any better method of figuring out what the value is based upon how much effort was put into it. And then you wind up in, in silly little arguments about how much effort something should have taken instead of just figuring out what it's going to take to solve the problem or provide the value or deliver the service and, and figure out how to effectively be compensated for that. No, you're, right, you're absolutely right. One story I'm reminded of is when Citibank merged with Travelers, they had a guy come in and do a logo, and he did it in under five minutes. It's a logo that's used today, and he charged them some astronomical number, and they said, why would we pay you for five minutes of work? And he said, actually, you're paying me for 25 years of experience that allowed me to get that problem solved for you in five minutes. And the story kind of goes to your analogy there, really, what is the level of effort or time of anything to do with it? Now, having said that, and the firms will shake their head, and I've done it myself, value, it cuts both ways, too. If you're churning a lot of hours getting your firm smart or your people in your firm smart on something, it cuts both ways, too, in terms of, okay, but we're not going to pay rack rate for that or hourly rate for that. If we want to talk value, let's talk about it across the spectrum. And I think you're more progressive professionals in this space are doing that and they realize there's a kind of push-pull in that dynamic. And th th there was a, th there's a bit in the report that talked about 
how how efficiently things were done, leveraging technology. And I think to your point, there, there's efficiency, but there's also effectiveness. And part of it just changes the, the time horizon that you're measuring things in. Because to your point, if people are getting together, um, getting the brain trust in the room and figuring out how to solve for many of these things for their larger matters, whether it's cost or value, whatever the, the risk might be, then if you are spending additional time to figure out how do we essentially scale this so it works for all matters for that one client or between the client and the firms, you're not getting any value at that point, but over the next two years, next years, probably you are getting tremendous value, but that also, that also works well in a vacuum and you saying it. But in the reality of we have to deliver work continuously, I know it's much harder to do. And I guess that becomes a question. How do you actually break away from your everyday obligations at work when things already feel under fire or underwater to then step away and have the space to figure out to ask as many of these questions? One thing is you have to be given the space to be able to do that by your Right. Like you cannot live in a world where every hour is going to be completely scrutinized and criticized and looked over if you need, say, uh, the right partner at a law firm to actually look around corners and try to figure out what the risks might be in a way that it may not be assignable to any particular matter or task. So I think you have to have that kind of relationship with your firms. And from a firm standpoint, I think that one of the issues is that one of the issues is that firms tend to be tied to their metrics within the firm is often number of hours spent and number of hours built, right? That's often the key metric. And I think that there's, I believe, and I, I know I'm pretty sure Keith does too, and David does too, there's money to be made by firms from leaving the hourly bill. It's this idea that like a flat fee is conflated with a reduced fee is not necessarily the case. There's ways there. If you can, every, almost any other business on earth besides a law firm has figured out how to increase efficiency and that increase in efficiency makes the firm more money, right? And only in law firms, it doesn't really work that way, but it could, right? We just have to find a billing model and a service delivery model that takes advantage of efficiency rather than penalizes for efficiency and get every big time law firm partner on board of the M200 to play ball. So it's just as simple as easy, that's what easy, I was going to say. That takes the simultaneous suspension of disbelief, right? From right. both clients and firms, because we know that the way the dynamic has been historically, if you do find a more efficient way to do it and a client finds out, they're going to go, I'm not paying that much for that little amount of time you gave me. And again, then we're back where we started. You didn't sell me enough time for that price. And, or and I'll tell a story. Little, whatever, yeah. I and I'll tell a story I heard. Your, I use this a lot when I talk to in-house counsel, legal loss people. It might be apocryphal. It might be true. But firm went to, a, to the client and said, okay, you have this litigation. And we're just going to charge you a flat fee of a million dollars to handle this litigation up until the courthouse steps. If it actually goes to trial, we'll talk about it there. But up until the door of the courtroom, we're just going to charge you a flat fee of $2 million bucks to handle everything. And we understand that the exposure on this thing is 20 million and that you would love to get out for 10 if you possibly could. They make the deal. And three days later, the partner calls up the client and says, I have great news. This, the exposure on this is 20. 
you wanted to settle, you wanted to get out for 10, I settled the thing for $6 million. And it only looked, how great is this? It only took me three days. You can knock that money off your reserves. It's way better result than you wanted. So happy to have served you. Here's my bill for $2 million. And the response from the general counsel is, why am I paying you $2 million for three days work? And, mm-hmm. and when I ask in-house counsel if they'll pay that bill, now this is purely, this is not data I have here, this is purely anecdotal, but when I ask, 50-50, like 50% of the people are like, yeah, I pay that bill. And 50% of the people are like, I might have to justify, I don't know, that's not a lot of work for that. And my attitude is, no, you might, what I would do is I'll write them a check for $3 million and tell them, you, you, I don't want to hear about conflicts from you ever, nothing I want. When we have a problem, you answer the phone every single time. That's what, because, but that's how, but if we conflate value with effort, that's what's going to happen when you get actually delivered the rare case where you have enormous quantifiable value. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I know in the report and for everyone else listening, it's reading it, there's a point about unifying the quote to cash life cycle and a lot more detail around that. But yeah, ultimately, it's, are, you pre- are you paying for the outcome or are you paying for the work that leads to the outcome? And you have to pick one. You can't have both. Because one of them doesn't really matter. It matters a lot from a perception's point of view. And I guess part of the problem is you have to go and then justify something that costs you $2 million, but you're giving a bill to the business internally in three days, in your example, Brad. And that's, it's a hard conversation to have internally, but only if it's delivered in vacuum. If it's delivered with, this costs us $2 million, but we saved four based on what we were willing to settle on. It's a net positive. And it's actually, it's a, it's even more than a net positive because you already, you had already mentally written that check for $2 million. It wasn't like it cost you two to save four. It was already costing you to, it was already costing you two. Exactly. I think that's, but I'm going to push back a little bit uh, just on your comment that you can't have both. I think maybe you can have both. We're like people, people like Keith are extremely sophisticated on the sell side and people like David have been extremely sophisticated on the buy side. And the instrument here doesn't need to be a simple instrument. It can be a flat fee up to this amount and then, or to, or then it were, and then something else after that, or a bone or a hourly billing, hourly bill with a bonus structure for success. There's, you can build extremely sophisticated models if you'd like that can help you achieve a number of goals and you can balance them as you feel appropriate, you know? And so I don't think you have to pick one, but if you're going to pick more, but you can't just, what happens very often though, is that folks pick one and they then complain they're not getting the other and you can't do that. And sorry, Keith and I spoke about this last time he was on the podcast where I think you can get that result. But you need both sides to be equally sophisticated to understand that you're going for the same outcome or one to be sophisticated and willing to educate the other, right? If you have, if you don't have the, I think at least my view, if you don't have that, then it's very difficult, but I'm happy to be pretty wrong. To be honest, it's a great outcome if I'm wrong on this. I was going to add, I think part of it, and this goes to the technology points in the survey as well, but. Part of it is also, I think it's a question of data inputs or extracting the data from the various sources within the firm or the department. And I think some of the advancements we've seen in not just generative AI, which everyone's talking about, but some of the advancements we're starting to see in some of the models, 
and some of the technology are really raising the whole questions around valuable tools, but how do I get value out of those tools if I can't plug them into my own data sources? And so a lot of the questions or discussions were, that I'm seeing are really around, okay, it's really time to think more broadly about the data inputs and how do I collect what's happening in the world around me to make them useful to have those more sophisticated discussions. Because you can model these things all day, but if the calorie burn to get the inputs in to prove those out is too great, it's a barrier to getting advancements in those areas. And so I think, and this survey was pre-open AI and open GPT and all that, or all of those, the pizza. And I think I'm curious to see over the next year what that all means in terms of how do we answer those questions in a more fulsome way. But underlying that, again, is the data sources. So a lot of people are talking about the AI piece, but what about the data that feeds it? I think that still remains something that will evolve a lot over the next year. Well, one related to that topic, one thing that's interesting to me is to see what clients or if clients are willing to pay for the technology and data science professionals to crack this code that will give them scalable value out of some of these potential options versus going, I'm not paying for that. That's not what I'd pay you guys for. It could be, you could pay us a lot less for the other stuff, potentially, if you paid for this. And, but it's interesting, you get an interesting, and it goes back to Brad, your question about the 1 million versus 2 million versus 3 million sort of thing based on the outcome. You said 50% said, yeah, I'd pay it no problem. And 50% said, why would I pay it for three days of time? I, I get the sense you get, it's a similar landscape with this scenario, these circumstances, where some clients would be like, why would I pay you extra? Why would I pay you to figure out the data that you should be bringing to me anyway, as opposed to going, yeah, if I'm going to pay for something that has a measurable yield to me, something that's got an economic value to me, I could easily point to where that's got not only an immediate, but potentially a scalable economic value to me to crack that code. And I'll have specialists do that for me too, in a very sort of specialized and to be redundant, sorry, but in a very customized and, and targeted way. That I think is this something is that a hopefully we'll see more evolution in that area too, because it's something that's worth, there's great value to it. It's worth money to know. I, I think that's a great example Keith, of a place where the hourly bill does a huge disservice to the law firm. If you put data scientists at, at X hours on the bill for this project, I think you're going to get a generally negative reaction from clients for something like that. that again, based on, like you said, like you employ those people, that's overhead. You should be delivering that. But if you instead go and you say, hey, we have data scientists and we have lawyers and we have associates and we built up a process to do this. And by the way, we looked at what you used to spend to whatever, review each contract. And it was a thousand bucks a pop. And now we're just hourly. And now we're just going to bill you 600 bucks a pop or 750 a pop, whatever it is per contract. And knowing that your real cost because you're leveraging that stuff is 200 bucks or whatever. I think, I think that's how you have to do it. You can't, I think a line item for a data scientist is going to be tough, but some sort of alternative fee around, around the deliverable that includes the data science and the technology it built into the price. I think that's tenable. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it like when you, it's like when you, it's like when you pay an insurance premium for your auto insurance, right? They build in a whole series of factors around that coverage, whether it's loss ratio type of vehicle, age, there's a whole process that actuarial 
scientists and, and kind of data scientists have been sorting out to say, here's your price. For this price, you get this level of protection for what you're paying for. And I think, to Brad's point, anytime I saw something like a data scientist on a project where I wasn't paying for an economic expert or testimony, it did cause you to bristle a little bit in terms of that's kind of some of the things you need to build in your own house in order to have a better story around that value and to ascribe better value. And I think there is a balance there for sure, I would say. I think it goes, I think it's great to have data scientists. It's great to have people focused on AI and leveraging all those tools. I think there's even foundational things that can add those values, having legal project managers, having pricing professionals, of course, they can deliver a significant operational optimization that you wouldn't get otherwise. And sometimes they can be, they can be charged by the firms. But a lot of the times it may not be, right? Similar thing to using tools that help with a lot of this, where you can actually ingest that data, give an outcome. Uh, but a lot of the times this foundational pieces tend to be missing too. There's pushback on why do we need this? This matter isn't big enough to have an LPM attached to it or have a pricing team attached to it. But you need those entry data points. If you think these matters aren't big enough, but that's 80% of all the work you're doing, they doesn't matter if they're individually aren't big enough. The, the corpus is big enough for you to think and do something about it. Okay, so we are almost at time. So I guess in the last question, what do you think with what, whatever may happen in the economy, if there isn't a downturn, do you think that's going to be something that has a impact on this that actually gets people to try and focus on delivering higher value, whatever that means? Or is this going to be resulting in-house teams trying to do more work in-house and putting even more pressure on firms to deliver deliver the same value for less? It's, and I think I read in, it was one of the last few pages which said the low-hanging fruit of operational optimization has all been picked. Is what's coming next, is that going to be transformational or is there a lot of work still to be done to get there? I'll go first. First of all, I think that the idea that an economic downturn will cause work to move in-house is a fallacy. It's been disproven for the past 30 years. You can't add headcount. You can't add lawyers while you're firing customer service reps. The optics are bad. It doesn't work. You can't do that. I don't, that's not, I feel strongly that's not going to happen. But what is different now is that there are other options besides just keeping the work at a law firm. So I think a downturn may cause law department operations folks and legal te- in-house legal teams to be maybe more open-minded towards different buy- places they can buy legal services. And I hope law firms more open-minded about how they can deliver legal services, not just at a discount, but maybe with whole better methodologies using different people, using technology, using GPT, whatever. Because to me, the biggest question that we're going to be facing over the next 10, 15 years is all of that, not commodity, but the everyday legal work that David mentioned, who's going to be doing that work? And I think that it's largely done at firms now. And I think that it's the kind of work that can be taken away from firms, but it's also the kind of work that firms are in the catbird seat to keep if they can figure out how. I think I'm a little less optimistic on some of those points. And here's why. 
as someone who's been in this space a long time, we always talk about the wide disparity and sophistication between folks who've been in the ops roles for a long time and some of the folks who are new to the career and who are very eager to solve for some of the problems. And for some of the folks in that space or some of the general counsels who are enabling legal operations professionals, this is really their first go around or a very early go around in a very challenging economic time. And I think if you're not careful and you go back to old habits or old behaviors of trying to reduce cost or to drive efficiency in areas that have already been picked, and I do believe that's a true statement from the report that they have been, you're going to end up burning a lot of cycles and calories on stuff that is not going to be as effective as people hope or give you a blip in effectiveness that isn't going to be long-standing. And so I think if we're not careful, you're going to see a, a negative or downward pull on some of the other advancements that people have been in the space longer can help take advantage of because they've already done that or having been there. And so for me, I think you're not going to bring more work in-house, although people are going to try to have in-house folks do more. You're going to try to automate in some of the old ways, and yet it's not going to be as effective because it's not going to get embraced by the business. So we're going to spin cycles on things that we've tried in the past that haven't been as effective instead of really pushing forward on something more meaningful, which is why I think it's important, one, to have leadership buy-in and a leadership understanding that that's a prerequisite to driving true, meaningful, sustainable change but also to have organizations out there who are talking to the market regularly like LVN and some of the others out there to really talk about, look, we've been down this road before. And as we've been down that road, here are some of the ways to navigate and to think about the problem in a different way, leveraging different capabilities. I think that's going to be real important. Otherwise, you're going to start to see a stagnation or even a slipping backwards in terms of some of the approaches. I would, I don't know if it's share or add to what, kind of David's comments were about having a higher level conversation about what hasn't worked in the past and don't go back to things that haven't worked in the past. I like to think, and maybe this is just my eternal optimism, but I like to think some of the things that didn't work in the past, the, the resources that they were trying to leverage, whether it was, we talked about alternative service providers, technology and those things. I feel like over the last, for sure, five, seven years, both of those segments have matured pretty substantially. So at least some of the risk or some of the lack of familiarity about how you might leverage some of those resources where it didn't work before, maybe wouldn't be as big a risks now and they would hold more promise. But I think to David's point, one of the things that will inhibit that is it's kind of going to a website once and the page doesn't load and you put the URL again, it doesn't load. You probably never go back again. It's like we tried that. It didn't work. Well, the world may have changed since you tried it last time, but because it didn't work, you automatically dismissed it and it sits in that category in your head where it's, that's not a viable solution for us. So try to look to synthesize some of those things into today's reality and what the needs might be could hold more promise than in the past. And I think that certainly some of those resources that they're dependent on, like I said, technology, other business forms that can contribute, uh, are, do hold promise. It's just a matter of being able to step up to the plate again and give it another try. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how this, if there is a downturn to the extent that they're, that some are assuming how it may differ from what some of the other ones had looked like in the past in terms of what we tried and what we, where we failed. And certainly the fourth issue of the report will 
probably provide us a lot more answers to those questions and what the impact of generative AI and a lot of other technological changes would have had. But uh, for the time yeah, being, absolutely. Brad, David, Keith, thank you so much for coming on. For anyone who hasn't yet read the report, it's a fantastic read and I'll link to it in the show notes. So please do grab a copy, have a look through the discussion today. I think it's suffice to say just the tip of the iceberg, both of how much depth we can go into and certainly what's covered in the report. Um, so I'll include that and thank you again for your time. And hopefully this is good a conversation for all of you as it was for me. I have pages and pages of notes. So thanks again for giving up some of your time for discussion. Thanks, man. Thank you. And that's a wrap for today's episode of Fringe Legal. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey through the mind of innovators, sharing their ideas to inspire us all. If you enjoyed this conversation, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We hope these discussions have sparked your own ideas and helped you think about how you can put them into practice. Until next time, stay curious and keep pushing the boundaries.